Well, good morning. Today we are concluding our series in uh, in Exodus. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. Exodus 25. Is this mic good enough so everybody can hear me? I saw a no in the back. Can you crank it up a little bit? Thank you. Uh, Exodus 25. We are concluding this series, and Lord willing, we'll be getting a series uh, next Sunday in the book of Revelation. So, um, and uh, not throwing shade at anyone, uh, I didn't notice this, but on uh, on the sermon card, it looks like they're assuming I'm going to need to start over and fix it. Uh, it showed up a couple times, uh, but uh, our plan is to start working through uh, the book uh, the book of Revelation, so you can. Uh, you can pray for that, and I encourage you to begin reading it, um, especially chapter 1, and that's where we'll be for the next couple uh, of weeks, so uh, you can pray for that. We're going to pray once more now and ask God for uh, His help in both the proclaiming and the receiving of His Word as we study the book of Exodus and its conclusion with the tabernacle. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that You are a God who invites us to draw near and to behold You. That you're not some absentee landlord. You're not some father who just put us here and left us here to fend for ourselves. But you are a good father. You are a loving Lord. You are a glorious Savior who calls us who are sinners to come unto you through your provision of mercy in Christ and to know you that we might dwell with you. And Father, we pray this, this morning as we come to this this section of Scripture of the tabernacle, and we see your plan and the shadow of, of the way that it, it, it foretells of the coming of Christ, we pray that you would help us. Father, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe and wills that are desirous to obey? Oh God, would you change us? Would you, even as we talked about last week, would you show us your glory? that we might behold You and delight in You and respond appropriately to You. Lord, help me, help us. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. When I was in seminary, there was a particular professor who uh, had a tagline that he would, he would say from time to time, and it, it, it came from an A.W. Tozer book, and it, it was this. He said, The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think about God. Because it affects every area of your life. The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think about God because it affects every area of your life. What that means is, if there really is a God, if there, if there really is a God who made the world, then that means that everything that happens in this life and in our lives matters. The way we see every sunset and every sunrise matters. Every dollar we spend matters. Every text or tweet that we send matters. Every sorrow that we endure matters. Every letdown that we face matters. Every joy that we celebrate matters. Every response to a coworker or somebody on the way to work matters. The way we respond when we come out and an animal has once again torn the trash in my yard matters. It all matters. Because there is a God who calls us to draw near to Him. To know Him. 
and to obey Him and respond in light of who He is. And this is part of what the tabernacle is teaching us here in the book of Exodus. And this is where we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 25. Now, in, in full disclosure here, how many of you, if you've ever read through the section on the tabernacle, have struggled to keep on going through? Right. So the rest of you either have never read it or are lying. And this is what some would call a snoozer section in, in, in full disclosure, okay? There's loops and hoops and goat hair curtains and robes and all kinds of things that when you're reading through, you're like, Lord, help me. Like, I know your word says that all Scripture is profitable, but I'm going to need some help to understand how this helps, okay? It's good. It's good. We love it. It's amazing. There's not one thing bad about this text. Let's start over. <laughs> that was better than lightning. So, um, <laughs> but when you, when you think about the way that the Lord has arranged this, there's 13 chapters that have to do with the tabernacle. When you compare that with the plagues in the Red Sea, there were 12. When you compare that to what He's given in Exodus about the law, there's six. Which means that God thinks that this is really important for us to see. And I think the reason is because of the big idea that this whole thing summarized, and it's, it's this. But because God dwells among us, everything matters. Because God dwells among us, everything matters. This is the main point that we're going to find as we study through the tabernacle. And I think what God wanted His people to see when He gave the tabernacle and when He gave the law, He wanted them to be navigating through life, realizing that because He's among them, they've got to decide whether everything they eat, everything they touch, whether it's holy or unholy. Everything they do or say, is it holy or unholy? Because God is among them. And this is what we'll see. Now, the way that we're going to go through this section. It's chapter 25 through 31 and 35 through 40. That's a lot. Which means that we obviously can't cover every single verse. So the way we're going to approach this is we're going to approach it in, in sections. The first is 25 through 31, where we're going to summarize and synthesize the instruction about the tabernacle. The instruction about the tabernacle. This is God giving instruction. And then 35 through 40, we're going to have the construction of the tabernacle. This is going to be after the golden calf incident and Moses' intercession, and then they're going to construct the tabernacle. And then we're going to conclude with the culmination. What did the tabernacle point toward, and how does that change our everyday life? What does it mean that God dwells among us now? All right? So, instruction, construction, and culmination. Let's begin here with, with instruction. Again, this is chapter 25, verse 1, all the way through 31, 18. What we're going to find here is that God commands Moses to construct the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is basically a tent in which God will dwell among Israel, among His people. Look at 25.1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may make for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall 
make it. Now, just a couple things to observe here in this initial declaration about building the, the tabernacle. The first, this tabernacle is going to be it's going to be the residence of the heavenly king. It's going to be the residence of the, the heavenly king. Look again at verse eight. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God is not just giving Israel some sort of building project here to keep them busy. He's instructing them to prepare a dwelling place for God Almighty. He is going to come among them. Now, the word sanctuary there, it means, it means holy or sacred or a set-apart place. This is going to be a place that's, that's special. Not just because they built it and put a lot of time, energy, and resources into it, but what makes it special, what makes it sacred, is that God is there. In the same way that the, the, the ground that Moses was standing on at the burning bush, there was nothing special about that plot of ground, but when God showed up there, He said, you're standing on holy ground, take off your shoes. What's going to make this structure unique is that God is going to be among them. If you look over at 2943, or you can just, just listen, he says, There, speaking of the tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will dwell, verse 45, among the people of Israel, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God drew them out of Egypt in order to draw them unto himself. God's not just doing tricks with the plagues. He's rescuing a people that he loves. And he gives them this tabernacle because he says, I want to be among you. This tabernacle, it's, it's basically a tented palace for Israel's king. He's making his home among them. And it was going to be set up in the middle of the nation. Later on, when you read in Numbers chapter 2, you see that the whole nation is going to be organized around the, this tabernacle. It's right in the middle of the nation, and everything else is oriented around it. They're all facing it because God is the center of their life. That's what makes them different. So it's the residence of a heavenly king. It's also, did you notice here, a reflection of the heavenly tabernacle. It's the reflection of the heavenly tabernacle. Did you catch it there in verse, uh, again, verse 8? Make me a sanctuary, verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. What that means is that in, in somehow when, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai, God lifts up the veil between this world and the world in which God dwells, and He shows Moses the heavenly tabernacle, and he says, I want you to make it like this. And then basically he gives him an Ikea set, and he says, here you go. And that's basically how I feel when you're reading through this. It, it looks like that. But, but, but it's, again, this is a reflection of the place where God dwells. This idea that it's, it's a reflection is repeated seven times in the Bible, culminating in Hebrews 8.5. Speaking of the tabernacle and everything in it, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on 
the mountain. So this tabernacle, in a, in a way, is going to instruct Israel how to relate to a holy God who is among them. And point them to the fact that it's not an end in itself, but it foreshadows a greater place where they're going. From the very outset, we see that here. Now, the way that the tabernacle is, is, is designed is there's, there's kind of two, two, two parts to it. You have the, the tabernacle itself, which is about 45 feet by 15 feet. So think about uh, about a half of a basketball court and then just a little bit wider than the lane of a basketball court. That's about how, how large uh, this, this tabernacle structure is. And then beyond that, you're going to have the outer court that's 150 feet by 75 feet. And that's basically just, just a wall that's going to be separating the people from the priests who are ministering in the tabernacle. So you've got the, the little pop-up tent, which is the tabernacle proper. And then outside that, you're going to have a wall that's around it. Okay? That's the way it's set up. Now, in this tabernacle itself, the, the, the tent, um, there's, there's two sections to it. And again, remember, this is God dwelling among His people. So I think one of the ways you can think about it is you have the, the front room and the back room. You have the front room, which is the holy place. And this is where the priests come. And they come daily, ministering there, representing the people. And then you have the back room. So it's not the holy place, but rather it's called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And that is the place where God Himself dwelt among them. Alright? Now, in this tabernacle, what God does, and this is what we find here in Exodus 25-31, is He... He fills the tabernacle with various elements. And all of them are intended to teach us about who He is and how He is to be approached in light of the fact that He is a holy God among them. So let's start in the back room, the, the heart of the nation, the Holy of Holies. There's only one item in the Holy of Holies. There's one item. Anybody know what it is? It's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. Look at 25.10. Make an Ark of a wood. And then he gives the dimensions. It's about uh, three and three quarters foot long, two and a quarter uh, foot wide, and about two and a quarter foot high. So it's a, it's a small uh, Ark. Verse 11. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. Verse 13, you shall make poles of the carry wood. Verse 14, to carry the ark, which is really important because there's something you can't do to the ark. What can't you do? You can't touch it. Because you, you touch it, what happens to you? You die. There's a guy named Uzzah who's a really good dude, grew up in a family that loved the Lord, and he reached out and he touched the ark and he died on the spot because sinful man cannot approach a holy God. So you need poles on this thing because you don't want to touch it. Verse 16. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I give you. That's the tablets, the, the two tablets, the Ten Commandments. Verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of gold. That's the lid for the ark. We'll come back to that in a moment. Verse 18. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Verse 19. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Verse 20. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat 
shall the faces of the cherubim be. Verse 22, there, in the, at the mercy seat, I will meet with you. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of, of Israel. So this, this ark is it's a, it's a golden box that represents God's throne. His presence is among them. God is, it's, it's His throne on the earth. And again, inside this, this box of the ark are the tablets of the law describing God's will, recording God's will for the people. And then in Hebrews 9.4, we find there's two other things. Aaron's staff, which represents the fact that this God who's among them not only tells them what to do, but then He leads them. And then you have the urn of manna, which reminds Israel that this God who's among them always provides for them. So He's a directing, providing God. And then again, on top of the ark, we have this, this lid or the top of it called the, the mercy seat. And on each end of the mercy seat, you have these, these cherubim. Now, anybody know what a cherubim is? It's an angel, okay? It's, it's an angel. So you're supposed to make these models of these, these angels. And they're on each end, and the, the angels, are, their wings are touching, like their, their wings are touching each other, and their faces are down because they can't look upon God. And they're, they're, it's this picture of the, the, heavenly, the heavenly court. It's really interesting in this, this giving of, of the instructions about the tabernacle, 13 times these cherubim show up. And this is really important, I think, because it, it's supposed to rem, remind the people that there's a God who dwells in a place that's far beyond you where angels cry out, Holy, 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 and you can't approach Him, yet He has come among you. So be thankful, but be careful. Because this God is unlike you. He's other. It's also interesting in 26.31, Exodus 26.31, that Moses received instructions to make a veil to separate the back room from the front room. The Holy of Holies from the holy place. He, there's a veil there. Does anybody know what is embroidered on the veil? Cherubim. You shall make a veil of blue and purple scarlet yarns and fine uh, twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy, or the holy of holies. And again, what it's intended to do is to send a message. Sinful man cannot approach a holy God. Don't come near. Because, Bible trivia time, what was the last time you saw a cherubim show up? Before Exodus. There's only one book. Just take a shot. Genesis, very good. You guys are crushing So, but there's a place in Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned against God and God gave the promise of a serpent-crushing Messiah who's going to come, He then set up cherubim in front of the tree of life and they had swords not letting Adam and Eve come back and take of the tree of, of life. They were unable to enter Eden. They were unable to have access to the tree of life. There is a, a, a cherubim that stands there with um, with a sword of judgment saying, approach and die. 
This is the message that comes from the Holy of Holies. I'm among you, but I'm not like you. I'm different than you in a way that is gloriously good, but dangerous if you don't take me seriously. This is, by the way, why... Actually, do you know there's only one time that somebody can go into the Holy of Holies? Anybody know when that is? It's the Day of Atonement. A priest goes in one time a year, and when he goes in, he's going to carry something. What's he taking with him? He's going to take blood. And you know what he does with that blood? He puts it on the mercy seat. Because up until that point, when God looks down from heaven, and He looks into the ark where His throne is, and He sees His law, His law is broken. And because He's a good God, He will judge the people for breaking His law. But what God does is He also provides sacrifice where blood now is shed, and it covers the transgressions. So God looks down from heaven, and what He sees is that it's been paid. It's a shadow of the greater sacrifice of Christ that is to come. So that is the Holy of Holies. One item in there, the ark, God's throne, where He dwells, and no one may approach, and cherubim guard it. Then you come to the front room, the holy place. There's three items here in the, the holy place. The first is the table of showbread. Look at 25, 23 here. You shall make a table of uh, a can of wood and overlay it with gold. Verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So he says, right outside of, um, of the Holy of Holies, here in the holy place, I want you to set up a table, and this is going to be a place for fellowship. Leviticus 24 tells us that 12 loaves of freshly baked bread are placed there every Sabbath. And the priests would eat this bread, symbolizing the fact that they're representing the nation who are having fellowship with this God who dwells among them. He, he, God gives this picture because He wants them to know that though I am not like you, I love you, and I want to draw near you, and I'm making provision for us to have a meal together. That's amazing that God of the universe sets this up where He's like, eat and picture our fellowship. Well, after the, ta- the table of showbread, then we've got the lampstand, because it's dark in there. Um, 2531. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Verse 40. And see that you make them after the pattern uh, for them which is being shown you on the mountain. So this is kind of a, a candelabra here, or commonly known as the menorah, that God sets up these seven candles, number of perfection oftentimes in the Bible, and there's light reminding them that you walk in darkness. You're not going to be able to come near my presence and fellowship with me because you can't see. Your sin blinds you. You walk in darkness. What God needs to do is He needs to give light so that you can see the way. The gospel of the world that says, hey, follow your heart is a terrible gospel. Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. And what we're going to do is we're going to chase after stuff and things rather than the one who gives good things. So what God does here is He symbolizes for His people, you need light to know the way to have fellowship with Me. So He gives this this lampstand. And then after that, we have uh, the altar of incense. Now this is just outside the veil. 
um, of, of the of the the uh, separating the holy of holies. So you have the holy of holies. You have the holy place. Right there in front of it, you have this altar of incense, where incense is burnt by the the priest. Chapter thirty, verse one. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. Verse six. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I shall meet with you. And every day, the priests start to burn um, incense on it, and, and there's a reason why. Two reasons. The first of all is that incense is often a picture of prayer. God speaks of the prayers of His people rising like incense. So if you want to come in fellowship with this God who gives you light, there needs to be continual prayers coming up to Him, and the priests are the mediator who is continually praying for you, sending up prayers to this holy God. And again, meanwhile, the nation is out here trusting in the mediating work of these priests who are doing this on their behalf, but they have no access. They can't come in. There's one other time that the priest uh, is to burn incense. Remember that, that we talked about the Day of Atonement? where the priest goes in and puts blood on the mercy seat. Before he goes in, in the instructions on the Day of Atonement, God says, fire up the incense and make it blaze. And it's, the reason is because the incense rolls into the Holy of Holies to protect the priest. He goes in there and the, the cloud of incense guards him in the same way that the smoke was on the mountain guarding Moses from being consumed by a holy God. You have this, this cloud of incense in there shielding this priest who's offering up blood because he himself is a sinner in the presence of the Holy God. He can't look upon him or he'll die. It's an act of mercy. And also, once again, an instruction that God, though amazing, is very unlike us. Yet, he comes among us because he loves us and he wants us to respond to him. All right, now after that we have the, the, the tabernacle itself. So you have the holy, place, the holy place and the Holy of Holies. Once that's set up, you need to cover it with a, um, with a tabernacle, basically a tent-like covering. You see this in 26.1. So chapter 26, verse 1. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Now, as you read on here, what you find is there's four layers of these, um, this, this tent. And um, the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the finer the linen is. You, you've got fine linen right next to the Holy of Holies, then you have a curtain of goat hair, then you have tanned ram skins, and then you have a goat skin covering over top of that. Now, you also see that same sort of thing reflected in the materials of um, of uh, that, are, that are used in the, the, the metals that are used. So the closer you are to the Holy of Holies, the more valuable um, the materials are. You have bronze further away, and then silver, and then there's gold close to the Holy of Holies. And it seems what God is doing in that is He is instructing His people about something very important. Because, you see... Our human nature, our sinful nature, we are naturally hypocrites. What that means is, most of us this morning, 
spent a whole lot more time thinking about how we looked on the outside and how we presented ourselves when we came in than we did heart work to prepare to meet with the living God. Most of us in our lives, most of us, we are tempted toward a religion that does our best to look good on the outside but neglects our hearts. But God is teaching His people here, that which is most precious is on the inside, not what's on the outside, it's what's, what's close to, to Him. And a, re- a religion that's going to be pleasing to God can't neglect what's happening in our hearts. Certainly it's going to show itself in our lives, we're going to get to that more and more, but it begins in our hearts. We see this echoed in the way that Samuel was talked to by the Lord. He said, Do not look on David's brother's appearance or the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at, at the heart. You see, I think one of the things that God is teaching His people, which becomes evident very clear in the teachings of the Lord Jesus, because He would rebuke the Pharisees for this. You're like sepulchers on the outside, everything looks good, but inside you're dead man's bones. God is giving a a religion to His people here that begins on the inside and then moves out. That's where transformation happens. It's not get your life together on the outside and then we'll start working on the inside. God is very much different than that. So these are the elements in the tabernacle. You have the Holy of Holies that's in the ark. Uh, You got the ark in the Holy of Holies. You have the holy place with the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense. And now, in 28 and 29, what he gives us are the servants of the tabernacle. Uh, In chapter 28 and 29, he's going to to talk about the priests here. Now, we're not going to spend lots of time on this, uh, not because it's unimportant, uh, but just for for sake of time this morning. We are going to highlight a few things, but if you want to know more about the priests, I encourage you to listen to our Leviticus series. The second sermon when I preached through Leviticus was all about the priests. We did Leviticus 8, 9, and 10 in that section, and we go into lots of detail about these priests. It all echoes the stuff that is, that is here. But as we think about what God's giving here with this tabernacle among His people, the Holy God is among His people, He's teaching them that they can't just approach Him by themselves. They need a mediator. God is holy. We are not. We need someone to stand before God on our behalf. And this is why he raised up these, these priests, these Levites, uh, descendants of, of Levi and, and Aaron. And just two things I found yeah, yeah, quite noteworthy that I want to point out. Something about their clothes and something about their consecration. Um, in chapter 28, he gives basically their their uniform, what they're supposed to wear. Uh, 28.6, he says, you got to make an ephod. This is basically a vest. It's purple and blue and gold, and it's, it's, it has shoulder pieces. And on these shoulder pieces, God tells him to put these onyx stones. And does anybody know what's inscribed on the onyx stones? The names of the tribes. Because it's a picture that this priest, the weight of the nation, is resting, and their spiritual life is, excuse me, is resting on his shoulders and his ministry on behalf. The nation is trusting the priest who's carrying them, as it were, as he goes into minister. Then in verse 15 in chapter 28, we have the breast, the breast piece, which is a, a square cloth that's tied to the ephod. 
and there's, there's 12 precious stones. And guess what's inscribed on those stones? The 12 tribes of Israel. The, the names of the tribes. Because they're to be near to the priest's heart because they're near to God's heart. He wants this priest to know that you carry my people close to your heart and upon your shoulders. And then verse 36, we see that he's got a, a turban, which is basically a holy hat, which praise God he phased this out under the new covenant. But he's, he's got this holy hat. Um, and on this hat, he's got, a, a, he's got a plate. And inscribed on this gold plate are the words, Holy to the Lord. Which is the declaration that the priest is saying, I am His. I am set apart to Him. He's holy, I'm not. I am ministering on His behalf. Now, all of these are symbols, I think, of spiritual realities that do matter for us. So I'm going to give just a word right now to, to myself, to the fellow elders, to those of you who would aspire to be elder pastors, and, and, and to the whole flock to, to pray for us. But when God gives this instruction to the, the priest of the Old Covenant, He wants the shepherds to understand that the weight of His flock is upon our shoulders. Now, ultimately, we know that we are under shepherds, that Jesus is the great shepherd. But when He enlists us into His, his service, there, He wants us, He wants His, his people to know that, that we bear the burden and the delight of caring for one another. Elder pastors, I think, feel this uniquely. But, brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, the Bible says that you too are a priest. Which means that you too are to care for one another. You're to bear one another's burdens, the Scriptures say. That we're to love one another from the heart. So as we look at this, we're not intended just to be like, good night, that's a goofy outfit. But we're supposed to see, you know, it's symbolically, this teaches us what God thinks about His church, about His people, and the way that we should, should feel the weight of the care for one another's souls. Similarly, we have the priest's consecration in chapter 29. Uh, in, in verse 7, there's going to be oil that's put on his head as a symbol of him being set apart. Then he's going to offer up a bull as a sin offering. And the reason is because these priests were sinners too. And they needed to have a, a sacrifice on, on their behalf. Um, and then, in verse 20, you find an interesting thing. There's a ram. This is uh, chapter 29, verse 20. You find a ram that's offered up. And, and then Moses is to take the blood of the ram, and he's to put it on the priest in three places. First, he's to put it on his ear, symbolizing that he is to listen to God. Then he puts it on his thumb to remind him that he is to serve God. And then he puts it on his toe to remind him that he is to walk with God. The priest of God is to be marked from head to toe as being completely the Lord's. Which again, brothers and sisters, this is one of the things we start out with this big idea that because God dwells among us, everything matters. One of the ways it applies for us right here is realizing that if you are in Christ and you serve as one of His priests, whether formerly in the role of like an elder pastor or as simply a brother and sister in, in, in Christ, that from head to toe, God says, you are mine. 
You would have been set apart for me. Listen to my words. Serve with the strength that I supply. Follow my will and my ways. That we are to be set apart as His servants. And anything that calls us away from that is to be feared because there is a holy God who dwells among us. And that means that everything matters. Well, verse 29, this section concludes. Verse 43, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Verse 45, I dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Verse 46, They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, I'm not sure if it, if it hits you while we've been talking about this. But the humility of God is astounding. He's the one who created the universe. Billions of galaxies. Stars, planets. He's the one who's eternally existed as the triune God who needs nothing. And he says to this bunch of rebels out in the woods, make a tent for me so I can dwell among you. I want a pop-up palace with you. I, I want to come near to you. Listen, I know what it's like to live with me. I don't like living with me. God wants to dwell among us, among His people. There's a lot of talk about in the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament is this mean ogre who just likes to beat people. This is not, no. He is the God who provides the tabernacle because He wants to be near to His people. This is, this is intended to help our hearts because... The longer you live on this planet, this broken, sinful world, the more that you will know the sorrows of distance from people that we love. At this church, there's people who move geographically, and we're, we hate to see them go. It's sweet when they come back and visit. Welcome back here. But there's death. People that we love who we say goodbye to. There's broken relationships. There's, there's distance that we feel. And all of those sorrows, time doesn't heal all of that. There's an old saying that time heals all wounds, and that's just not true. It doesn't. There's some things that only Jesus heals. And all things only Jesus heals ultimately. And what this tabernacle is intended to teach us is that there's a God who comes near to the brokenhearted. That He wants to come among His people and so that they know that though He is unlike them, He loves them and He wants to be near to them. That He is a kingly Father who is willing and desirous to condescend to draw near to His people. As we read that, I think we're supposed to feel that and be warned and to delight in Him and to want to know Him more. And that's where the story takes a tragic turn, right? Because while God 
is giving this instruction about the tabernacle, you know what's being brewed in the hearts of his people? Israel is constructing the golden calf. It's as if God is planning a honeymoon for his bride and she's off with another lover. Already! That's chapter 32 that you can listen to that John did a wonderful job on. Helping us to see the great tragedy of God's people trading God for an idol. And then, chapter 33 and chapter 34, which we saw last week, we saw Moses interceding on behalf of the people. And then crying out, show me your glory. And God says, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to go in without you. And he says, no, 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 we don't want to go anywhere if you're not going with us. And then God says, all right, I'll come among you. Which brings us now to chapter 35, where he says we are going to do the tabernacle. And now we have the construction of it. So we've had the instruction of it, which was the longest part. And now we're moving to the construction of the tabernacle in chapter 35 through 40. So God had given instructions about building the tabernacle. Now it's time for Israel to get to work. And what we're going to see, as we've been talking about that, because God dwells among us, everything matters, you're going to see that everything about their time, their treasure, and their talents matter because God is among them and He's called them to use them in light of what He's done for them. Now, the building of the tabernacle starts in a curious way. He calls them to rest. Look at chapter 35, verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days you shall be done, but on the uh, six six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. This is really interesting. God has just given all this instruction about tabernacle, and now He says. We're going to get started on the tabernacle, but before you do, don't forget the Sabbath. Now, why does God threaten them with death about the Sabbath? It's because the Sabbath is the mark or the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Chapter 31, 13. You shall keep my Sabbath for this is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you or set you apart. You see, God's law calls His people to serve and to obey Him. But Sabbath reminds them that rest is only found in remembering how they were served by Him first. He served them by setting them free from Egypt. And He calls them regularly to work, yes, but to rest and to remember what He has done for them. He's guarding Israel from being so caught up in serving Him that they neglect fellowship with Him. Some of y'all need to hear this. I need to hear, this was the hardest thing for me on the first week of my sabbatical, was to stop trying to do things for God. I just felt like I had to do, do, do. And one of the things that I, I came away with was the understanding that God wants you 
more than He wants what you can do for Him. It's not like God really needs us at all. It's not like He sets up this tabernacle and you're like, oh, I was going to make everything better. It's going to be a lot easier now. This has nothing to do with efficiency. This has to do with intimacy. That He's a God who loves His people. So before they even start this building project, He says, remember to rest. Then after the reminder to rest, He calls for contributions. So time has come to get the construction rolling, and now you need materials. Chapter 35. 35. Verse 4, Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, yarns, fine twine, linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skin, acai wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, fragrant incense, onyx stones, and settings for the ephod and the breastpiece. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. Verse 20 of chapter 35. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses because they ran back home. Verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him brought the Lord's contribution. Verse 22. They came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, dedicating an offering to the Lord. Verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use skill uh, spun the goats here. Verse 29. All the men and women and the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done brought, uh, brought it as a free will offering. Alright, so God says, here's the deal. We're about to get started on this. But he doesn't just Amazon Prime them all the materials. He's not just like, hey, we're just going to we're going to order it. We have Lowe's bring it or whoever your carrier is. Like, just, like, rather he says, I want you to give to me what I've already given to you. You see, God had already given them what they needed to do to fulfill what He called them to do. And do you notice? What do you notice about the people's giving here? What, what, what stood out to you? I'll start over, y'all. No, I won't really. But their hearts moved them. They gave generously. They gave sacrificially. They gave joyfully from the heart. This is old covenant people. Now, what would compel them to give so freely and generously from the heart? What would move them to do that? It's because God had given so much to them. He had freed them from bondage. He had raised up an intercessor for them. He had provided His law. He had fed them with manna and water from the rock. He had given this instruction about the tabernacle, how He was going to dwell among them. And the only right response is, Lord, you've given us so much, how can we give back to you? This, by the way, is one of the reasons I'm convinced that if you want to increase the giving, the generous giving in a local church, it's not by teaching that, that you, have to, you, have to, you have to tithe, which is actually an old covenant thing. But rather what you want to do is you want to show how Jesus fulfills the tithe, how Jesus fulfills it all. And you see, when Christ gave everything for us, all we would want to do is give everything back to Him. 
This is what happens to these people. They have been they have been given much, and because of it, they give so much that in chapter thirty-six, Moses says, "Y'all turn it off. Stop giving." He's like, "You've given too much," which is not normally the problem, but it was. They brought so much stuff. He's like, "We've got plenty to fill, to finish the job, exceedingly abundantly." If you want to learn more about how to think about giving, on our church's website under resources, you'll find a shepherd statement about about giving. If you haven't read that, I highly encourage you to check it out. It'll help you think about how to apply these principles directly in your own life. So there's a call to rest, a call for contributions, and now there's a call for service. God gifts His people to do what He calls them to do. Chapter 35, verse 30. <clears throat> then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has, uh, has called uh, by my name uh, Bezael. And he has filled him, verse 31, with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work and skilled craft, verse 34 of chapter 35. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Horlab. Verse 35, he has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer. Now, the reason this is important, I think, is because, do you notice here, that God gifts these people with gifts. He, he, he gives them skill and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship to do stuff like carpentry, engraving, Designing of textiles, embroidering. Now this is very important. In a, in, a, in a place that thinks a lot about work, I think one of the things that God wants us to know is because God dwells among us, everything matters, including our work. There's no sacred, secular divide here. This, they are gifted by God to use the skills that He has given them to do work in such a way, yes, to accomplish His means, but to give Him glory. One of the ways I think is really important for you is to think about what has God gifted you to do with administration, with numbers, with service, with using your hands. And how are you using those things for the glory of God? Yesterday, the, uh, the Hamilton family and well, Ben and the kids and I and the kids went down to uh, the torpedo factory and we were looking at um, some art stuff and there was a guy down there who was, uh, he, was a, he was a potter and he was making pottery. And um, I'm feeling like I should Jesus juke this. I need to say something about the Lord. How am I going to do this? I'm like, hey kids, did you know that the Bible says that uh, God is like a potter and we're like the clay? And then he quotes the verse. Like, he's like, yeah, it says this. And he quoted it correctly. And I was like, oh, so he's in. All right. So, and, but then he started talking about this. And he, he knew that this, he thought about how, what God is like and how God had given him gifts. And that he saw everything that he crafted as being a picture of, of what the Lord does. So I would ask you, do you look at your work as just kind of meaningless stuff? Fixing paper jams and, you know, writing TPS reports or whatever you're writing or doing your thing. Like, whatever your thing is, 
Do you find it to just be like, this doesn't really matter? Or do you understand that God has actually gifted you to be able to use the skills where you are for His glory? Happy to talk more about that offline if you'd like. God continues to give all of this. They made everything in chapters 36 down through 39. Chapter 39 ends this way, verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. In chapter 40, the tabernacle is, is actually assembled. It's anointed with oil. And the people, you see, eight times show up in the chapter. The people did as the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. And as they obeyed and they put together this, this tabernacle, God draws near. Verse 34 of chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God's presence that had only settled on occasions before now takes up a permanent residence among his people. Glory has filled the tabernacle just as he promised. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But the cloud was not taken out, they did not set out, taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Imagine this. The nation is set, they're camped around this tabernacle, and by, at night is a it's glowing fire that God is there. And during the day, there's this pillar, there's this, this cloud, this pillar of smoke. That God is there. He's among them. He's near to them. And I think it's really important to notice here in verse 35 that as the glory filled the tabernacle, who couldn't enter? Even Moses. As faithful of an intercessor as Moses was, he was imperfect and unable to access God's presence, let alone bring others into it. And it's there that we find a clue that this tabernacle's not the end. But that what we need is a, a true, faithful mediator. One who's going to come, who's going to do more than what the tabernacle could ever do. Who is Jesus. Which brings us to the final section of culmination. Culmination. After Israel entered the promised land, Solomon built a temple, a more permanent tabernacle, basically, in Jerusalem. Nearly identical in many ways, yet it did not fulfill. And then Israel, in their sin, they, they, they rebelled against God. In Ezekiel, you see the glory of the Lord departing. And he mourns over it. And then you've just got this religious structure. It's destroyed by Babylon, and then another is rebuilt in the days of Christ, right before the days of Christ. Still a temporary structure. Still pointing for a more permanent dwelling. And then comes Jesus. 
Jesus comes as the true, perfect tabernacle. The true and better mediator. You see, in Jesus, the glory of God has come among us. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the glorious, eternal Son of God who came as a man. And in Him, the glory of God fully dwells. In Him, the glory of God descends from heaven, as was foreshadowed by the tabernacle. Now, one of the things that that matters uniquely for is because worship of the one true God is no longer tied to a place but rather it's tied to a person, the Lord Jesus. We draw near now to God through faith in Jesus. He is the place. He is the tent. He is the temple where we meet with God. Christianity has no geographical center of worship. There's no Mecca for Christians. There's no Jerusalem that we need to pilgrimage to. Actually, even coming in this building, God, God bless, God, praise God, that He's given us a building to meet in. But this is not the tabernacle. This is not the temple. This is not a sanctuary. It's a room in which God's people meet. Jesus foretold of this in John 4, 21. He said to the woman at the well, He said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. You see, Jesus is where worship happens. You want to worship God? The only way that you can approach a holy God is through Jesus. He is where the glory dwells. Jesus showed that He is greater than the temple in John 2. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection fulfilled the shadows of the tabernacle in the temple. Jesus' body is the tent and is the greater ark of the covenant in which the glory of God dwells among his people. Jesus is the greater mercy seat where blood is shed and covers our sin if we are in Him. Jesus is the greater table of showbread because He is the true bread who comes down from heaven and provides fellowship with God and us. Jesus is the greater lampstand. As He Himself declared, He is the light of the world and whoever follows Him will never walk in darkness. Jesus is the greater priest who ministers on our behalf, holding us close to His heart and resting upon His shoulders our salvation. But Jesus is not a priest who needs any kind of offering for His sin because He had no sin, yet He became sin on our behalf. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember what happened in the temple? What happened in the temple when Jesus died? The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, sinful man from the holy God, it was torn in two from top to bottom. The cherubim with their swords fell that day. And through Christ, sinners now have access to the Holy God. 
This is what Jesus has done. All of the tabernacle is a prime of the pump of the heart for Him. Then three days later, He rose from the dead. And now, through faith in Him, we have unhindered access to draw near to God. Jesus is the true and better mediator. Moses was shut out, excluded by the glory of God in the wilderness. But Hebrews 9.24 says, Jesus has entered, not into the holy places made with human hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's the good news of Christianity that no other religion can hold any candle to. Because the question that every single person has to wrestle with is, if God is really true, and if He is different than us, if He is holy, then how can you know Him? And what He communicates all the way through the Bible is that you cannot approach on your own merit. You need a mediator. This is what Jesus came to do. To die, to rise, and now, through faith in Him, turning from your sin, trusting in Him, being united with Him, we now, in Christ, have boldness to call God our Father. To come boldly to the throne of grace. To know Him. But it doesn't stop there. Because when Jesus ascended to heaven, who did He send? He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell, to dwell in His body on the earth, in the church, in the people of God. So the, the church is the body in whom the Spirit dwells. As amazing as the tabernacle is and the incarnation is, which is amazing, consider the fact that God's Spirit now dwells in you if you're in Christ. That's why, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Friends, we began with the realization that because God dwells among us, everything matters. If God cared so much about loops and hoops in a tent that He would dwell in the wilderness, how much more now does He care about our words and our actions, and our interactions with, with others in light of the fact that His Spirit dwells in us if you are in Christ. The reason we did the book of Exodus before we did the book of Revelation is because this book is a foreshadowing of what Jesus ultimately does. Jesus takes us to the place where we will dwell with God forevermore. And we will see His face unhindered, no longer by faith anymore. So as we close in prayer, I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 21. Father, we come before You and we thank You for Your Word which You gave to John. This vision about the day where we will tabernacle with you forevermore. For he saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
Father in heaven, we long for that day in which we will see the fulfillment of all of that. So, Father, we pray that in this day, that you would meet us wherever we are. Father, if we don't know you, we pray you would meet us there and show us how much we need a mediator and how precious of a Savior Jesus is. And that you would let no one leave here comfortable being outside of Christ. And Father, for those who do have your Spirit, God, we pray that you would help us to be a people who think about the way we use our bodies, which are now the temple in which your Spirit dwells. God, would you help us with our words, with our eyes, with our ears, with our hands, with our feet, from head to toe, our whole bodies. Might we be living sacrifices? God, would you guard us from the sin that creeps so near? And would you give us a heart for that day when we will sin no more? Come soon, Lord Jesus, in His name. Amen. Amen.